Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, and I'm joined, as always, by Corey. We are here today to discuss a couple topics with you. How are you doing, Corey? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing okay for this time of year. Yeah, hanging in there. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of things do we have on the itinerary today? First up, we're going to explore the word recovery. You know, it's interesting that we haven't we haven't broken that word down uh, on our podcasting journey here yet. Really, it's a word that is loaded loaded for a lot of people. Uh, it's a word that we've both talked about recently in meetings and and expressed that there can be some angst around or some concern around it being uh, either misused or overused, or that it just doesn't accurately represent what's going on in someone's life. Really, so we kind of came to realize that it the word itself needed a little bit of time and attention in our conversation here hey i do think that is the case yeah it is a strange word it's been politicized um mm-hmm. like we've mentioned before it seems to be caught in a bit of a tug of war it it has ramifications for the disease model um it has ramifications for safe supply uh harm reduction all these things are kind of tied into a, a set of beliefs or principles or a paradigm that is shaped by the language we use. And at the yeah. center of it, maybe at the center of it is the word recovery. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to start by just giving the Oxford definitions of it. I believe you have those in front of you, perhaps. I do. So there are, um, there are a couple here. Number one is, a return to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. Number two is the action or process of regaining possession or control of something stolen or lost. And then commonly used in the process of recovering from mental illness, drug addiction, or past abuse. Right. So the third one is the more colloquial sense. Mm -hmm. The first two are definition one, When you look at a return to a normal state of health, I think that's when I was back in uh, the early stages of, you know, just really examining this stuff when I was listening to what I was being told in treatment. And then on the other end of it, shaking my head, wondering what happened. The return to a normal state is the part that didn't sit well with me because there seemed to be this kind of idea that. Well, the first idea that you're normal, I mean, that is a very difficult thing to elucidate in itself, right? Yeah. I mean, are we talking, we're assuming we're talking normal as in back to the way you were? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) humans don't work like that. No. We're we're dynamic. We evolve, we devolve. And I think there's a case to be made, but those are really the only two directions. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult as a human being to stay I mean, to stay in one state is is tough. So it's almost as if the word itself denotes a certain type of failure (laughs) right off the bat, yeah. Because it's a it's an intangible limit or or definition. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you considered when you were going through this stuff? Did were you bothered originally by that, or did it sit well with you, or was it something that you looked at later because you had more important stuff to do? I think um, I agree with you in that that returning to a normal state uh, wasn't true for me. You know that that the state I was in for a long time before before developing a, a, a an addiction 
that's not where I wanted to return to. I wasn't like, that wasn't my goal. Right. Cause I, I think there were a lot of signs that I recognize now, a lot of feelings and, and like emotional and, and psychological symptoms that I was having in my normal state uh, mm-hmm. that I didn't want to return to. I wanted to create something new from that. I think for me, the, the definition that I ended up using much more or that came up in, in my therapy, came up in my conversations and, and resonated better with me was, was number two, the action or process of regaining possession or control of something stolen or lost. Yeah. That, I, that, that's a that's, little more accurate, right? I, it felt more accurate for me that like, that and it is not i think that definition could sound a little bit like you're there's blame there or like there's you're you're calling outside forces or outside circumstances the cause but the parts of myself that i was lear- starting to relearn about and explore and uncover and i've used the analogy of like turning over turning over rocks you mm-hmm. know like those were pieces of myself that i was finding and kind of putting back together yeah and yeah, I think maybe lost is a more accountable word, right? Mm-hmm. So while you're struggling with that kind of idea of how did I lose control of the situation, the responsible thing to do is to consider it a loss, I think. So yeah, I like uh, I hadn't thought about that part as much, but that's a, that's a great point. And if we say that it's something that's stolen, then yeah, you're right. It implies an outside force and Certainly, there are many, many forces that we're not in control of, but I don't think it's helpful to take that stance. Yeah. You know, um, and I, I guess when I think about what's a tangible example of regaining something that was lost, for me, that part of that would be my ability to like to, to feel things fully and deeply, to feel right. joy and happiness, to laugh until I cry or to feel hurt and pain until I cry and like, let that go. That part of me was lost and it was lost. It was lost before addiction really kind of clung on. I think that the, the addiction filled that filled this space, filled this void that was there and it masked those symptoms. But what was lost was lost prior because I think for someone, I think I, and this, this goes back to the very beginning of our conversations where, you know, how come when I was a teenager, I was able to sample codeine mm-hmm. or take codeine, you know, once recreationally for a kick and then leave it and, and never come back to it for a right. very long time. I don't think that void was there needing to be filled so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the main part of it. And that also fits in nicely to what, what the rest of the stuff we're going to discuss today. So. Yeah, I'm glad that came up. I was thinking about this earlier this morning as far as, um, you know, if you try to put it into an example of, say, maybe a a football player running down the field or something, okay? Mm -hmm. And the football player has the ball running along. He's he's heading towards whatever goals he has in life. In this case, it would be the the end zone, right? Mm Mm-hmm. There is a moment in the run where the football player loses focus for whatever reason. Maybe he glances up into the crowd and sees a face he recognizes. Something happens so that there's a change in in focus during that run. While that change in focus happens, there appears uh, some sort of an obstacle that the player did not anticipate. It could be somebody coming in from the side, an opposing player, 
maybe the there's a rough patch of the field, something like that. The player runs along, foot catches, and begins to stumble. So you could see what you're talking about being that kind of lost sensation or whatever that that follows or that precedes the rough patch in life. Mm-hmm. Now you've got a situation where there's a problem. Two of the major things that could happen here is the player could go down, lose the ball, fumble it, whatever, or the player could stumble, recover the 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 running stride and continue down the field. This mm-hmm. is probably going to happen several times while you're <laughs> doing whatever you're doing in life, right? Yeah. But if there's enough of those obstacles, enough rough patches in a row combined with a loss of, you know, whatever, um, maybe you've stopped focusing on your mental health, whatever it may be, whatever factors lead you into this stumble. Now you're in a state of trying to get yourself back. And I think that part there where the player is stumbling has not fallen and is in the, uh, this kind of flux between the two states, that's, kind of a more accurate term of where recovery could be used effectively. Yeah. And then obviously to look at it from a chronological point of view, if the player stumbles and recovers without dropping the ball or, you know, hitting the deck, then the player regains the stride and either goes down to score a touchdown or something else happens. But after that stumble, we wouldn't say that we wouldn't keep talking about the fact that the player, I mean, there would be some discussion by the, uh, uh, by the people calling the game, but then the game would go on, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be two seasons later. And they're still talking about the, the the fact that this player has recovered. Okay. Okay. It's a, it's a situation that, that happened at a time and place due to certain factors at that time and place. And now we've moved on to the next obstacle, the next thing. So mm-hmm. it, that's the part, I guess, that bothered me always was the the tense of the word recovery versus recovered versus recovering. I mean, are we, I, and this is something that that many people believe is that if you have a drug and alcohol problem, you remain in a state of perpetual recovery for the rest of your life. And I guess I'll, I'll pass the ball to you on that one. And what do you think? I mean- yeah. Is there a case to be made here or is this just not accurate? It's such a good question. I'm sure that the looking back at the history of of this that 12 step had an influence on that language and the model of, you know, that the if you slip or if you have a a, a relapse, even if it's a one-time relapse, you're back to zero. So like that model in itself kind of keeps someone in a perpetual state of recovery. Yeah, um, because you're not, you don't get any credit for the learning experience. In fact, it's considered a failure. Yeah. Right? Which is not conducive to growth. That, yeah. like you said, keeps you in a state of recovery. I mean, I, I think it's personal. If, mm-hmm. if someone, if it works for someone and, and it, like, if they feel like they need to be that reminded to keep everything on track in their life, that that word helps them do that, then so be it. You know, but I, I think that. But are they not grasping the, you know, is there a lack of, of real understanding there of what's going on in your own mind? I think there is a lack of understanding. Yeah, I do. Because it it just seems to me that if you, if you looked at yourself, I think I understand what you're saying in the, in the way that uh, somebody can use that word as a, it's like a shield, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Somebody comes up to you, hey man, you wanna you wanna come out drinking or whatever? No, I'm in recovery. And the person kind of, oh, hey, sorry about that. And they go away. I think there was a time in our culture where that was kind of a that was almost like an admirable thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like especially in the 90s. That was it was almost like a badge of honor. I think that people wore that. Like, I'm in recovery. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I could see how somebody would uh would kind of latch onto that and and hold on to it like a shield. And if that's what they need to do, and as and that's as far as they want to go with it, then I guess power to them, right? Mm-hmm. The things that keep us holistically healthy, the things that keep us productive and, and balanced are not exclusive to recovery. The things about our mental health that we as human beings who want to be happy and or equanimitous and and resilient and strong, the things that, that will keep us there are not exclusive to recovery. You know, exercise, conversation, connection, a sense of community, a sense of meaning, good eating, time out in nature, releasing the, the, the stresses and the things that burden you. Those are not exclusive to, to recovery. So when we, I used this example with you before, like when people ask, I'll just use a nurse as an example, like how is your, how is your workplace or how is your job affecting your recovery? I think all nurses and families of nurses need to ask the question right now, how is your job uh, affecting your your sense of balance, your, your, mental, your mental health, health your mental yeah. health, your <laughs> overall well-being, your ability to connect with others? Those are questions that we should be asking our loved ones and our and the people in our lives anyway. But with recovery, with someone in recovery, it, it tends to get asked kind of gingerly or um Yes. It, it tend, or or like that that person is more vulnerable and maybe some are but i would say that the last couple of years have been particularly uh it's been apparent that we're all vulnerable we're all susceptible to fractures within our state of mental health based on life circumstances that's right and it uh that ties in nicely to something you brought up before and that's that if we are going to use the information that science is now providing us as far as what are the primary drivers of addiction, like the parameters you were talking about that you, you want to keep in mind when you're supposed to be in a state of recovery or in uh, this perpetual recovery mode or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be somebody who's, uh, I guess if you're going to be referred to as somebody in recovery, then it could be said that everybody now needs to be on that same level of uh, awareness or defense. They they need to have that shield as well. If we're going to have any chance of, you know, for example, coming out of the, the toxic drug crisis, mm-hmm. because these issues that are not being addressed and maybe over the last few generations haven't been addressed and that were then exacerbated by the pandemic are now a lot more front and center. So uh, for example, if you're, if you are a nurse, you're coming out of school, and you're not prepared mentally for what's going on in hospitals right now, or if you don't have a clue about you know what you're getting yourself into, is that not as dangerous across the broad spectrum of people as far as a drug addiction is concerned? Because yeah, you just don't know what uh, you don't know what an individual susceptibility is, and they don't necessarily have to have had a problem before; they could be a problem 
there could be a problem waiting for them mm-hmm. that they don't know about. So yeah, it's, it's almost like it's a, uh, it's really redundant to state that you're in recovery. If you're, if you're looking at the whole picture from uh, individual up to society, we all need to pay more attention to our mental health. And maybe the, you know, going through a situation where you were forced to examine these parameters that factor into that is beneficial. Um, that's, you know, if that's what happens, then that's definitely a silver lining of, of coming out the other side of a drug or alcohol problem. But, you know, maybe we need to pay a little more attention to just the broad spectrum of, of issues that are affecting us right now, regardless of whether you have a drug problem or not. Yeah. So we have a couple more questions or, or points that we wanted to explore with the word. When we think of, you know, we had my dad on the show. Mm-hmm. It's been, I haven't asked, I didn't ask my dad this prior to, to this uh, episode, but you know, as someone who has 40 plus years, is that person still in recovery when it's like 40 years of abstinence? If he had of had a slip along the way, would you, again, it goes back to like, do you start over? Is abstinence the only thing that recovery is? <laughs> well, you could ask your dad, would the circumstances be exactly the same for him? What if he, if something terrible happened and he slipped and he decided he wanted to drink? He drank for a couple of days and then he's like, no, I remember what this is like. It's, it's not the way, puts uh, the bottle down or whatever and goes back to the way he was living his life before because he feels like that is a superior way to exist. If you're saying that he goes back to zero, then you're saying that his 41 years of experience living his life sober in his, he chose to live his life in abstinence which is honorable, difficult, and an experience in itself compared to how most people live their lives, right? Yeah. I mean, 40, 40 some years, he's been taking life on just him and life, right? No, mm-hmm. no help whatsoever, no, no crutches. So that would be taking away a lot of experience from that man. If you're to say that he's going back to, to square one, it obviously cannot be factually correct or even subjectively yeah. correct, right? Right. But I would, <laughs> I would have liked to uh, ask your dad about that. That would have been, <laughs> and you should still because I, I will. I think he he might get a chuckle out of it. Uh, but he's also pretty thoughtful, so I you know I'd like to to hear what he had to say about it. And that brings us to the next question, which is when does recovery stop and when does recovered begin? Or if recovery is not a state of perpetual recovering, then at what point? Do you say to yourself, I have recovered from this problem that I had. I am aware of the pitfalls. I have learned from the experience and I am moving on with my life. This mm-hmm. does not mean that I go to the town square and sell my shield for a couple dollars and forget about it. Your shield remains, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have to necessarily be up there where your shoulders all tense and you're trying to hold off an attack because yeah. you've learned something, right? So in this kind of world of uh, subjective reality, I guess, uh, we're, we're really trying to honor a lot of different individual perspectives of right now in society. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe this is a good time to give that the option of that word back to people yeah. on their own terms. 
as an autonomous descriptor. Yeah. If you feel that you've gotten to a state where you are no longer stumbling and trying to regain your grip on the ball as you're going down the field, you've now got your stride back and you're heading in the right direction. Why the hell are we still talking about it? Mm-hmm. You know what the situation is. The people close to you in life know it. If somebody wants to know more about it when they meet you, that's fine. But you're not going to like going around and talking about how does this help at that point? If you're still, we, we still have to grow as humans. It's not like you just, you're going to stop trying to be a better person or to try and figure out a way to live life in a more meaningful, I don't want to, developed way, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think going back to the, the idea about if, if after whatever length of time, a couple of years or, or many years, you slip and you go back to your, your substance of choice, I think you have to ask the question of, of what happened and get really, really honest with yourself and ask, what did I miss? Or what is missing? And that may be multiple things. That may be the balance that you once had, the connection that you once had. Maybe those things just start to drift away. Maybe something really black and white happened, but it requires a big level of honesty, I think. It does. And it requires acknowledgement. I mean, if you're, we're going to go back to the football player here. If the football player's shoelaces came untied on his uh, right foot, and that's what caused the stumble that led to the fall or the slip or the loss of the ball, whatever. Are you going <laughs> to, are you going to think about what led to that problem? Of course, you're going to address that. I mean, the coach is going to be jumping up and down. Whoever's responsible for the gear is going to be freaking out. There's going to be measures that are taken to prevent that from happening again, so that that slip or mistake is not a lost learning opportunity. You don't just forget about what happened and, it's part of moving forward. It's not part of moving back. Yeah. So I guess for me, like, and I'm not, I don't feel at all insulted or slighted if someone asks me that question. Yeah. If someone asks me, you know, how does this affect your recovery or how's it going? But I, I think it deserves a broader conversation. And I, I would hope to be able to ask that back to the same person who asked me. Like, <laughs> how are these things affecting how your life is flowing right now? Yeah, I've had the a, a kind of conversation like that before where it was with somebody who I, I mean, I, I don't know, but it seemed to me that they were kind of asking the question out of, uh, you know, it's like um, something that you say, like at a funeral or something, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, like, we have choice words that we say for that. And that's fine where, you know, it's a difficult thing to socially navigate and I get that, but I feel that the question is personal in some respects. And I am a, an open book if you want to talk about anything, really. I, I have no problem with that. But I've found that when I return a question of the same intensity, often it's deflected and the, the person just moves <laughs> <Yes>. on. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. The sports analogy is is kind of a poignant one. I was thinking about the NHL goaltender Carey Price, and he in 2020 in the in the playoffs of 2020 2021, and this was mid pandemic. They had done a shortened season and a altered playoff stretch, and he carried the Montreal Canadiens on his back and carried them, I think, right into the finals. and And then it came out after the fact that he. A was playing through a an injury, a leg or hip injury, 
and that he had developed a, an issue with, I believe with opiates and painkillers and he hasn't played since. Mm-hmm. And the language around that was about bouncing back about like the speed of, of the whole recovery around the injury itself, the physical injury. And to me, I, I don't, I, I don't think you can say that. And we've talked about this too, that why don't all people with a physical injury then get hooked on painkillers because it doesn't work that way. And it right. requires m- multiple other factors in one's life to, to kind of be of, of influence. Right. Yeah. It's, it's always got to be at least two things. That's what I've noticed. Right. I think it does. I, it, it can be an initial injury. That's fine. Most people, when given an opioid for pain, will take it as prescribed and and be okay. It'll work for pain. They may require a taper down for physical symptoms, depending on how long they've been on it, but they'll move on with their life and that's it. But it's mm-hmm. always when there's two things or more where it's, okay, now I've injured myself. I lost my job because of this injury and I'm under a substantial amount of financial pressure And because of that, now maybe my partner is thinking of leaving me or something. You know, like there's always extra things piled on to the original whatever that causes the emotional burden and that uh, loss of security or feeling that the future is going to be okay. And that plays into the hopelessness part that I think is that's the hook right there. And people don't see it coming because we don't talk about it enough. Yeah. You know, instead of like, I remember back when I was uh, early, when I was practicing as a pharmacist, it was the end of doctors, you know, basically who were just firing out opioids left, right and center because Purdue had did their little trick there where they told everybody that uh, they had a product that wasn't, uh, <laughs> it wasn't addictive or wasn't as addictive or ridiculous. Yeah. Um and not the doctor's fault. Absolutely not the doctor's fault. Uh, they were just misled. Yeah. And uh, the data was misconstrued. And yeah, it was a big problem. Anyway, it was at the end of that. And I, I saw a lot of people, this was before I had any understanding of, of uh, not, well, I didn't really think about addiction before I got into trouble with it, right? But I saw a lot of people who were coming in with scripts for Percocet, scripts for Oxycontin, and it, it would be like sprained ankle, man. You know, right mm-hmm. to 20 milligram Oxycontin. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, you got to tell you, you know, even as, even back then, it would be like, you kind of obligated as pharmacists to be like, this is a fairly powerful medication. You know, you might want to consider if you had any problems with addiction in the past, that kind of thing. That's the spiel that we're required to give, but maybe there should be more of a spiel. And I don't know how many, how many physicians and pharmacists are, would have the time these days, but if people were a little more aware of, you know, you could say, how are you doing, Mr. Jones? How's your life going? Now, I see that you've you've just had hip surgery here. How's your how's your wife doing with this? How's your, you know, it's just affecting your ability to, to uh, pay the rent or, or pay the mortgage. You know, like it's almost as if you need a extra social, not almost, you do need an extra social intervention there to make sure that people are aware that they are susceptible, not just because the drug itself tends towards a physical dependence. Yeah, that's a problem, but most people, I mean, you can do it. You can get through that if you don't have extra stuff on your plate. Mm-hmm. But if there was something like that available, I think that would 
at least give people a second to be like, okay, how bad of a place am I in here? You know, is this worth it? Maybe I want to reevaluate this. Is the pain bad enough for this? Can I get by with uh, Advil and Tylenol, you know, or non-pharmacological means? What do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah. And and, uh, I mean, the same goes for in the emergency departments, at least within the last the last couple of years that I was in there, hydromorphone specifically was, was, it was so just on the tip of every physician's tongue and on the hip of every nurse to <laughs> go and sling it. Cause it was just, it was that effective and the patient's crying or the patient's calling out or they're in a lot of pain, boom, done. And without, with zero questions in advance, zero questions. Right. And that, look at that, eh? That's, I mean, that's the problem right there. That's a Mm -hmm. little, not a microcosm, it's a macrocosm, but it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of how you talked about before, how that just emotion of injecting person after person after person after person. And you're like, what is this thing that I'm injecting? Well, it's a problem solver. (laughs) Yeah. I have a problem. Well, you got a problem solver right in your hand. What's the problem? Yeah. (laughs) You know, so I guess we've talked about it a little bit, but when we talk about what we should be doing as far as, you know, is there a state of recovery that we could refer to as a state of maintenance? What do you think about that? Yeah. I like that word a lot more. And just a moment ago, I was thinking about what words would I replace recovery with? Maintenance would be one to say, how are you maintaining? (laughs) (laughs) Right. As, as life circumstances are fluid and things shift in your life, how are you maintaining all of these other things? Yeah, because maintenance denotes a concern for time and a concern for energy and resources. Mm-hmm. Whereas recovery doesn't really, you're like, well, in recovery, I don't know. Like maintenance says, I know that I can't work 60 hours a week and have a wife with three kids and drink a bottle of scotch every Friday. I've learned my lesson about that, right? So mm-hmm. therefore, there's other things that I have to do to make sure I'm not working too much, make sure I'm putting effort into my relationship with my kids and, you know, either manage or readjust your your relationship with alcohol. That would be a form of maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. The word is still clunky, but I do like it better. <laughs> I think I do too. And I think that's the word that can be universally applied. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's yeah. any issue with that. And then I, I think that just kind of goes along with personal growth in, uh, in how it personal growth fits into recovery. And that I like to think of human beings as, uh, I think we're like sharp. We have mm-hmm. to keep moving and there's two directions for us. It's forward or back. This appears to be the way this place is set up. <laughs> yep. if, if you don't keep moving either mentally physically, I mean, all, if possible, in all three directions, spiritually included, if you can somehow balance movement forward in all three of those aspects, then you are a healthy human being, in my opinion. Yeah. If you stop, then it's just a backslide because I think everything that we deal with as humans, especially now is on a little bit of an incline, right? Not a big Mm -hmm. incline, but it's an incline that needs to be acknowledged. We can't just do some stuff and then go lay in bed for three days. 
It's yeah. not how, I mean, that's a recipe for depression, right? Yeah. And you know, just going back to what you said a moment ago about time, that the con- that the conversation around maintenance and around the impact of life circumstances on our ability to maintain balance and to thrive, that is a, a longer conversation. And to me, it's like when I think about the healthcare system, it is no surprise in a system that is completely short on time, perpetually, <laughs> in, in, in every sense, time and space, that having that conversation with all of the individuals, all of the, the staff members, all of the professions, they don't have that time. So is it a, is it a surprise then that the people who, who stumble and do fall and maybe fall into an addictive behavior, that those are the people that are either alienated or ostracized or stigmatized because it taking the time to more deeply understand everyone's mental health and have that big, broad conversation as a whole, there's no time for that. So the, the, the sore thumbs that stick out are the ones that kind of get plucked off. It seems. Yeah. And there's many, 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 many people like that. And like you were saying before, I mean, I haven't put a tremendous amount of thought into it, but you spoke before about how we're not funding social work enough. And Mm -hmm. maybe this is a opportunity or a, a time for social work as a field to step in and kind of take the pressure off the medical system so that they can do what they're meant to do. I mean, I talk to GPs and one of the things that I hear often is I'm basically a a counselor. I'm a paid counselor. Yeah. You know, uh, if you're doing uh, family medicine, you're going to have many people coming in there and they want to talk to somebody and the poor doctors, (laughs) you know, they, they've got a schedule that they, they've got many people, too many people that they have to see. And they're trying to triage medically mm-hmm. when these people are looking for a social intervention. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe that's the thing, right? I mean, there's there's all sorts of different socioeconomic issues in this province, but maybe that's one that that could be brought into play and, and we could dump some more money in there. I don't know. That's a huge part of it. And, and I think, yeah, well said that the, the system on every level, I think unit clerks and nurses and and uh, housekeepers would all say that they've had moments where they end up acting more as a, a counselor or an ear. Um, uh, I can tell you as a, as a pharmacist, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I've had 45 minutes, you know, people come in and they're pouring their heart out mm-hmm. because you're there, you know? Yeah. yeah there's definitely a, a need. Yeah. So I guess maybe when I think about it, the us and them is harmful. Absolutely. That, that the, how is your recovery can sound a bit us and them. Yeah. When it, it is a much more collective issue. And yes. uh, you, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You're drawing another line in the sand. Yeah. And it's a line that people are very comfortable drawing. And I understand why, but what a difference it would make if we could take that out of the conversation and just ask mm-hmm. each other, how are you doing, man? Yeah. Not, hey, how's it going? But really, how are you doing? <laughs> like, how's your mental health? Are you keeping it together? These are stressful times. Not to be shy about asking those type of questions. Yeah, because the other, the other mm-hmm. thing that may ring true is when people 
in recovery, I'll say, are asked, how's your recovery going? It's like, it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, it's good. It's yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's so it's good. all like this sped up quick thing, like yeah, yeah, a sort of surface level thing. Yeah, and there's there's a time and a place for that, but uh, as far as the delineation between two separate groups, I mean, every time we fracture ourselves, we cause a problem. I believe that now in a in a way that I didn't understand it before. It's we must unify under one banner as as humans that's it we we have to stop with the the all these different ways that we divide and box ourselves in yeah this comes back to our war draper episode it sure it? does yeah one of our pinnacle achievements <laughs> <laughs> we're just about through our examination of recovery here we got a couple more things to talk mm-hmm. about what are your thoughts on recovery being an all or none phenomenon I think it's, again, I think it's quite individual. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've read lots, you know, there's lots of people online on Twitter who I've read recently, you know, recovery can be cutting, recovery is cutting back. Recovery is, you know, having a one less drink. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't know. I'm not sold on that. Each individual has to say, going back to like, are these things that give me balance and equanimity and joy and nourish me? Are they intact? If you are able to do that in earnest and honestly, then then maybe so. Very difficult thing to do. Very, very difficult. And it, I do have to question that a little bit and say, like, really? <laughs> are, are, you, are you really? <laughs> I think it, what's happening here is you're seeing the word recovery. This is what I'm talking about with the tug of war. The harm reduction is pulling on it, right? Yeah. You're like, no, we're taking this away because the 12 step people in the Minnesota model have had it subjugated too long. And we're, <laughs> we're, it's a tug of war, but like all tug of wars, there is a lack of balance. It's always, it's always a pendulum one way or the other. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessary. We can leave that alone. And because I think what people are talking about really, when they're saying, you know, one less drink a day can be defined as recovery so one less drink a day can be defined as harm reduction. Sure. You know sure. what I mean? That's yeah. harm reduction. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Harm reduction is a, it's a sorely underutilized tool, right? Yeah. Even here, we need to get real about harm reduction. And yeah. there's, I mean, this goes back to safe supply and all the things we've talked about before. It's, but I, this is where our language is so politicized. We, we get into these tug of wars with it. And it's like, ah, do we need that? No. Do we, do yeah. we need, do we need to bring recovery back from the, like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, if you go back to it's the original 12 step people didn't even demand abstinence. No. It was not part of the original 12 steps. <laughs> like people have, it's been so long. There's been so many tug of wars, the the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, back and forth, left, right, left, right, left, right. When you look at these these words, and they almost lose their meaning entirely. Like this poor word of recovery is just it has been in the trenches. <laughs> it's been beaten down, uh, pulled, stretched, manipulated, politicized, and uh, yeah, it's just it's not helpful. Yeah, 
I mean, again, it goes back to the us for them. It's just all you're doing is drawing lines in the sand and and trying to force definitions. We don't need to force definitions. Let's just try to look at the evidence and take a pragmatic, objective approach when we can. And then when we're on a a person-to-person level, take a subjective approach and ask that person what's going on for them because everything is going to be ultimately down to a individual level when you're when you're trying to source out what the causes are of these these issues right yeah there's no such thing as a broad stroke here so no this is you know probably a, a good way to finish here but can recovery be a modification of behavior uh, such as a reduction of use or is it purely about abstinence what are you know what are your feelings about that now yeah like i said i'm i'm skeptical of that mm-hmm. i would challenge anyone, including myself to say, are these things intact? Like, well, I'm, I'm, I've cut back on my substance use. I've cut back on my drinking, but I'm still not talking to my, to my family. I'm still completely isolated and alone. And my mind is completely filled with self-hatred and self-criticisms that I can't overcome and that keep me from going out outside. Mm Mm-hmm. If all of the, if those things are not true, and if if you are winning on the self criticism and on the you know your mindset and and your negative thinking, if you're overcoming that and able to to thrive in all of these facets of your life, then maybe so, then maybe so, and maybe there's a part of addiction as a learning condition, is that you learn a new way to move through your life, and abstinence does not have to be the only way to move through through life. I don't believe. No, I don't believe it either. And maybe it's easier if you remove the drugs and alcohol from the picture entirely and just simply ask, are you moving or trending in a direction as a person that is positive or aligns correctly with your goals? Do you have goals and values that you've thought about enough to understand that they're they're having a current impact? Are you aware of the impact those things are having? Have you made adjustments? Or are you, because it really doesn't matter. You've heard the term uh, white knuckling, right? Mm -hmm. This is something that I think it was uh, born of the Minnesota model. I could be wrong, but if you're completely abstinent and white knuckling, that's kind of where you're describing somebody who's, they think that the problem is entirely on the drugs and the alcohol. So all they've done is take the drugs and alcohol out of the equation and they think that's it. Yeah. Big mistake. Yeah there's some understanding there that there needs to be personal adjustments made. My belief is that it's easier to make those personal adjustments from an awareness and action kind of point of view. If mm-hmm. you give yourself a timeout on the drugs and alcohol, yeah. that's just how I feel about it. It, the 90 days seems to align with what science is uh, predicting as far as what most people need to have enough of a cellular turnover in the nervous system to kind of have a reset point where you come, uh, you know, we've talked about kind of being in the clouds or whatever before. Right. And I've experienced this where I'm not having a problem with drugs and alcohol, but I'm using drugs and alcohol. And I don't realize that a cloud has formed around me and that I'm no longer seeing as far ahead. I'm no longer kind of feeling things the way I feel or felt before, but I'm not necessarily having an acute problem with drugs or alcohol. It's just that I'm not sort of engaged with life in the same way I was before. And when I stop the drugs and alcohol after about 90 days, my head pops out of the clouds and I can look around again. 
Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I yeah. was in a cloud there. But it's difficult. Navigating that cloud is very difficult. So it can be done. People do it. They cut down, cut down while they're growing personally. This can be done. I've seen it before. I've seen people maintain uh, a certain level of alcohol use while they grow as a person. They could be tremendously successful, not just in a monetary way, but as individuals. And, and they, the way they live their life can be very admirable. So it's not necessarily that the inclusion or uh, subtraction of drugs or alcohol, that's a factor, but it's not, by far, it's not the only factor. No, no. To to bring it back to like a, a smart recovery term, about disputing irrational beliefs. And if you are, whether you are abstinent or not, if it comes to be that you are not able to dispute those irrational beliefs, even I think that, that those beliefs themselves, that inner criticism is, is a normal human condition, mm-hmm. but your ability to fend them off and to dispute them and say, no, that's not true. I'm not, I'm not that way, or I don't need to isolate. I don't need to be on my own. I don't need to cut people off. If you are not able to do that with regularity and you are using a substance or any kind of addictive or compulsive behavior, the risk of of a spiral is there. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a great way to end it too. We can, uh, sure. we can leave it there for now and uh, maybe revisit it in the future. But I, I think both of us have a fairly comfortable position in our minds as far as w- where we're at personally and, and what we see happening in regards to society as a whole. So, yeah, I think so too. All right, Corey. Good chat. Thank you. Thank you.